Okay, welcome everybody. Let me get some water here real quick. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Here we go. Sunday. Sunday reading time. Useful features you, you'll love. Okay. Microsoft's like giving me goodies. Let me have a little bit of water. Okay, I want to welcome everybody to uh, our first non-holiday Sunday read. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. And, uh, ow, wow. <laughs> That's the way to mess your hard drive up. Um, I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. And I'm going to be reading a uh, ghost-related book. And this one's going to take a while because it's a, it's a fairly large book called The uh, Ghost of Flight 401. It was made into a movie, and they've sent, and they've also done specials on it, you know, like on In Search of and uh, Unsolved Mysteries and things like that. And I think it's even had a documentary. Um, the story is interesting because it, it it has credible witnesses involved, as far as the hauntings go. Okay, and um, you're going to see that there's a little bit of a few two or three chapters of build up to where. The writer John G. Fuller actually gets into the meat and potatoes of the book. But it's interesting because John G. Fuller looks upon this thing as a non-believer in ghosts going in, a skeptic. And he still doesn't quite, you know, even though he, he talks with, with psychics and stuff, he still doesn't quite give you the impression that he's a believer in, in these things that, that, that were happening, which is kind of cool because he, you know, he's like, like I said, on the regular radio show, he talks, I gotta move this real quick. This is bugging me. Hang on. There we go. Um, like I said earlier on, on the regular radio show yesterday, he talks or, or um, what was it Thursday? He talks to psychics. He talks to skeptics. He talks to scientists. So he, he, gets a full round thing and he talks to these pilots, he talks to these stewardesses, he talks, he, you know, and, 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 and so he, he gets a fully rounded, let me get in here. Cool. You know, he gets a, you know what, I got to send one to Marisa too, I forgot too, so let me send that off. Let me get that link off to Marisa because I forgot before I go any further. Hi, Jerry. But he talks, um, he talks, you know, it's a fully rounded, balanced thing is what I'm saying. Most ghost hunters should do their investigations like this because that's what you want is you want your investigation to be uh, fully rounded. And this is what he does. And so you'll see that. But the book is going to start out, like I said, we, we've got a forward to read. And then it's going to start out um, with background about him because at the time he he gets information on this book to re you know, and gets requested to write this book, he's in the middle of writing another you know, uh, he's in the middle of writing another book. So he, uh, you know, he's kind of apprehensive about taking on the project. But once he gets into the project, let me get this to Marisa here. Just bear with me. Got to get my number one fan here. Here we go. Okay. The book. Okay. Um, once he does get into the project, you'll see how he gets into he really gets into the project and starts researching the thing. Okay. Hi, Jerry. Hello, Pamela. So let's get a couple more minutes for people to come in and we'll do, and, and, and we'll get into the ghost of flight 401. But um, it's, this is a book that I've had. I mean, I don't know how it even got into my hands originally back in, back in the 70s, you know, late seventies, early eighties. 
but I know I've always had a copy of it in one form or another. I know I, I my original copy got knocked, that got wet in the bathroom. We're just going to leave it at that. And so I, I, I would read that occasionally. The toilet was flushed already. You know, you know, it wasn't full of anything. And then I turned around and bought another copy, and that copy got torn up by one of the dogs. And then I turned around and bought another copy of it, and had that for years. And it got it was so it was so well used between my father and I reading this thing that the pages were falling out of it. So I finally got on, you know, I finally got my my uh, tablet. I finally downloaded it on Kindle, and now I have a copy forever, as long as I, you know, as long as my tablet doesn't commit suicide, and Amazon still likes me. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's a book I've read over and over and over and over and over. So I can pretty much like just sit here and tell you about it, but I'm not going to. I'm going to read directly from the book. But John G. Fuller is an award-winning journalist, uh, writer. He's deceased now, so he probably knows more answers at this point than we do as far as, you know, wh wh whether that kind of activity and stuff is true. You know, so, um, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to start. We'll get this show on the road here. And this is The Ghost of Flight 401. It's probably going to take. It's not going to be as short. It's not going to be as short as, as uh, Mrs. Miracle. It's going to take us a few, a, a couple months to get through, because like I said, it is a huge book. Uh, he goes into explicit detail on stuff. The chapters are really long. So, um, okay. Without further ado, let's do this. Forward. Ooh. Okay, forward. I first. Now it just flipped. Of course it did. I first heard of the Ghost of Flight 401 on the Scandinavian Airlines flight from Stockholm to Copenhagen in March 1974. The stewardess was friendly and congenial. She told me she had heard one of the strangest stories she'd ever encountered from a friend of hers, a flight attendant, on British Airways. Dead members of the flight crew of an Eastern Airlines plane, which had crashed in the Everglades in late 1972, were reappearing at very distinct and solid, as very distinct and solid apparitions in several Eastern Airlines flights. The stories were so vivid, she continued, that they had traveled consistently among crews of most international airlines. I asked her why the legend of the ghost hadn't been shifted from Eastern Airlines to SAS or other European airlines, where the story would have much more local appeal. Most folklore changes robes with telling of the story. As it is, re as it is repeated, the details often take on the local fabric of the person telling it. Soon only the basic outline remains, to wear whatever uniform the storyteller decides to drape with it. She was quiet a moment, then said, That thought is very interesting. Perhaps the story doesn't change because it actually happened on Eastern. We both laughed. She went on with the complexities of serving the delightful Scandinavian food that SAS offers on its flights. What intrigued me about the story was that it had traveled across the airline such a distance, and that it maintained an identity with a specific type of plane and a specific airline like Eastern. At that time, I was working on an extremely difficult book to research. It involved a serious accident in a nuclear power plant near Detroit and the dangerous implications of nuclear power proliferation throughout the world. I had no time to think about a ghost story, however intriguing. About a year later, I was riding on an eastern jet from San Juan to New York. Half joking and half embarrassed, I asked the flight attendant, who was serving the meal, if she had ever run into a story of the apparitions. She appeared shocked. That's not funny, she said. It happened to me. I had an experience in the lower galley I'll never forget. I apologized, saying that I didn't mean to take it lightly, but that I was curious about it because the story had traveled so far. I asked her to tell me more about it. The attendant was busy at the time, but returned later after she had finished serving the meals. 
Of course, there are many stories going around, she said, but my experience happened before I knew about any of them. It was in late February 1973, about two months after the crash. I was in the lower galley. I felt this presence there. It was eerie. I know it sounds ridiculous, and it's really impossible to describe. There was definitely a presence there, even though I didn't see anyone, as some of my friends did later. The temperature of the whole galley literally became freezing. I'll never forget it. She was visibly upset in recalling the incident. By the way, she added, I spoke impossibly. Please don't mention my name about this. She went on to say that soon afterwards, she began hearing that flight crew members who, who were directly encountering full-scale apparitions of one or two members of the flight crew who had been killed in the Easter Jumbo Jet that had crashed. She had felt that her experience might bring some helpful information to the Eastern authorities, vague as it was. She went to her supervisor and explained what had happened. Instead of being interested, her supervisor told her that she knew a psychiatrist whose wife was a flight attendant, who understood all the problems the girls might develop on the job. Perhaps a visit with the psychiatrist might be helpful. I was never so furious in my life, the stewardess continued. I have never experienced anything like that before or since. Later, I learned that any crew members who reported any of the incidents that followed have been referred to the company shrink. So very few will talk about the story anymore. A lot of them feel they'll be fired or laid off. It was many months before I finally succumbed to looking into the details of the incredible story. When I did, an intricate web of circumstances began forming among the most be uh, informing, among the most baffling I've ever encountered. The result is a ghost story. It deals with the question of life after death. It is hard to believe, even if you have an inclination to believe in ghosts. It is a ghost story that has happened not in a dark castle or a Victorian mansion, but in a most unlikely place, a modern jumbo jet airliner. There are two opposing forces that confront a ghost story. One of them is an attitude of total skepticism. The other is an attitude of total uncritical acceptance. Neither is healthy. There are certain concepts that both schools of thought can accept. We are born and we die. During that space of time, we observe, we feel, we think, we communicate. We really don't know where we came from or where we're going. It is hard to even guess. It is almost axiomatic that there is a knowledge beyond our own perception. History has shown that. Our pool of knowledge has grown over the years. While the total is, is vast, there is still more to be learned. We are born to explore, to try to find what is around the next bend of the river. Carl Sandburg once said that death is simply part of life. It is. It is a legitimate area to explore. If it is, it's a legitimate area to explore, even if it is difficult. The tools for exploring are limited and fall into the hands of theologists, philosophers, and parapsychologists. Only the last have made attempts to find hard, rational evidence to any extent. Only recently has parapsychology been admitted to, to the discipline of science as demonstrated by its acceptance in the American Association for the Advancement of Science. If death is part of life, then it is of overwhelming importance. The fragility of life and the durability of death remain a dominant theme. The story of Flight 401 symbolizes both, not in a mood of despair, but of adventure and exploration. John G. Fuller. Chapter 1. I've been conditioned all my life to think that there are no such things as ghosts. They were merely vestigial remnants of ancient superstition, suitable, or Hamlet's father and Halloween romp, and that was about it. 
When I returned to the United States in April 1974 from the European research for my book on nuclear power development, I was swamped by a massive television and radio tour on a book of mine that had just been published. The tour would take me all over the United States for interviews on a pressing schedule of one-night stands. It would be spread over a period of eight or nine weeks, right on the heels of a two-month trek on the nuclear story. During this time, I would be trying to complete as much as I could of the nuclear book research. I had about four days rest in Connecticut before starting out on the promotion tour. I had no time for reflection, but the four-day respite was welcome. In that brief time span, I had a chat with my neighbor, Don Lynn, who was a DC-8 pilot for Seaboard Airlines. He also began telling me about the strange ghosts that were haunting the Eastern planes, the big new L-1011 superjets of Eastern, known as the TriStar Whisperliner. It seemed that everyone who had anything to do with any airline in the world knew about them. The following day, I had dinner with Pete and Sharon Henning of Richfield. Pete is an extremely talented cameraman and filmmaker, and his wife Sharon was a flight attendant for Pan Am. An Eastern 727 pilot was at the dinner. And Eastern's ghost dominated the conversation for the entire evening. Sharon Henning had been deadheading on a trip and had been seated next to an FAA executive. He told her that he had heard that some non-structural components from the wreck plane said to be re said to be reutilized on plane number 318 were being removed from the plane, and that Eastern was considering changing the number of 318 because of the story circulating about it. The theory was, if there was anything to it, that the apparitions went along with the parts that were salvaged. Also at the dinner were Sharon's sister, Marcia, and her husband, and her husband. Marcia is a flight attendant for United, and she had run into a long series of stories from various friends at Eastern. While the general public knew little about the story, it was a frequent subject of conversation among airline people. The question that came up constantly was why the stories were so consistent. Why did they never shift from Eastern and the L-1011 to another airline or another type of plane? The events did not follow the usual pattern of rumors, which constantly shifted base. No one at the dinner knew the answer, of course. On the day following the dinner at the Hennings, Frank Umhofer, another Seaboard Airlines flight crew officer who lived near me, stopped by my house to drop off a newsletter published by the Flight Safety Foundation. This publication was sponsored by a group of aviation insurance companies in the interest of accident prevention. Each article deals with some feature of aviation safety. In among the safety items was the following story. Resident Ghost? Today's world, and outer world too, frequently seems to abound with strange happenings with what some might refer to as extraterrestrial aberrations or possibly transcendental occurrences. One such happening recently came to our attention, and it was reported to be fact enough to have been written up in a logbook on a specific trigenic jumbo. SFS, FSF Flight Safety Foundation is passing on the experience, hopeful of the comments of other flight cabin crews. It may not seem to have much to do with safety, and yet, anyway, here's the report. One of the flight attendants on this particular trijet was in the lower galley of the jumbo, when in the course of her duties, she happened to glance into the glass window of one of the ovens or mule heating units. There, looking out at her, or was it a reflection, was the face of the flight engineer that had lost his life in the Everglades. He had been below checking the position of the jumbo uh, jet's nose gear when the big trijet slammed into the marsh. The mystified and not unstartled flight attendant went topside and asked another stewardess to go below. She did and verified that the, what the first girl had seen. Then they asked the flight engineer of their flight to go below. He did, and he not only saw, but he talked to the vision. 
or ghost, if you will, who said, watch out for fire on this airplane. Shortly thereafter, the airplane, number 318, was in Mexico City when a problem developed in one of its three engines. The flight crew asked for and was given permission to make a two-engine ferry flight to the engine's maintenance base for an engine change. On takeoff from Mexico City's airport, nearly a mile and a half above sea level, a fire developed in one of the big jumbo jets, two remaining engines. The engine had to be shut down, and it was. Only through the flight crew's almost unbelievable experience in handling the big jet were they able to come around and land safely on one engine, never having gotten any higher than 400 feet above ground level. We say almost unbelievable because it did happen. But perhaps it wasn't only through the flight crew's expertise. What do you think, and have you heard of the story before? We understand it is not unknown and has been extensively discussed by many professional airline pilots. What do you think? This was probably the most distracting piece of material I could come across at this time, but it indicated the amount of attention the subject was getting among all the airlines. I was intrigued, yet even if I had been sure I wanted to follow up on the Eastern story, I still had no time whatsoever to even consider it. I had to mix up the promotion trip with the remainder of the research left on the nuclear book, which was to be published a year and a half later under the title, We Almost Lost Detroit. The route took me to Washington, Chicago, Detroit, High Point, North Carolina, back to Washington, then out to San Francisco and Los Angeles. I had no time for the story, yet I found myself checking every cabin crew on nearly half a dozen different airlines about the Eastern story. This informal survey must have covered a total of some 30 different people. At least 25 of them not only knew about the stories, but were able to add further details. It became routine for me to convince the crews on each flight. When May 1974 arrived, it was necessary to set up a rigid schedule so that I could complete the writing of the Almost Lost Detroit. I had seven large cartons full of research, five or six major textbooks on nuclear physics, and over two dozen 90-minute tape recorded interviews. Just sorting out the research was a major job. I was lucky enough to find an opening at the McDowell Colony in southern New Hampshire, where some 30 writers, artists, and composers can live and work in secluded studios in lovely pine woods without disturbance. It is an endowed foundation, and a writer can be spoiled rotten by it. I had written two other books at McDowell, and I found the atmosphere conducive to getting work done. Thornton Wilder did much of his work there and drew on the town of Petersburg and neighboring villages and prototypes for our town. Eleanor Wiley wrote many of her poems there. Leonard Bernstein composed there, as did Aaron Copeland. Edward Arlington Robinson was a regular guest and joined many colonists over the years in claiming there was something about the place that generously spurred the creative muse. Each colonist scratches his name on a wooden plaque above the fireplace in ink as he starts his stay at the studio. There may be seven or eight plaques in each of the 30 studios going back to the early 20s, when the colony began. When I arrived at the Watson studio in May 1974, I went through the ritual of signing my name along with the dates I was, there, I was to be there. The row of wooden plaques faded to darker wood as the signatures moved back in the years before. I had not been aware in my two previous stays at McDowell that there were several ghost stories involving it. One very persistent story involved the ghost of Eleanor Wiley. She was constantly reported being seen on the stairways of the main lodge. She was also alleged to be seen in the room she once slept in. The room was in the charming salt box house set aside for women artists, in the days when women colonists were considered separate but equal. Those who later slept in the Eleanor Wiley room would persistently report strange noises and appearances. The reports would come from reasonably sane and sober people. 
Again, I was intrigued in hearing about them because my interest had been been piqued by the Eastern Airlines stories. There were also many reports that the ghost of Edward Arlington Robinson liked to revisit his former haunts. He had done much of his entire writing. He had done much of his writing in the Velton studio, far from the main lodge. It was a lovely rustic cabin built of native stone with the usual huge fireplace and view which swept over the pines to the distance, New York, Hampshire mountains. Beside the doorway was a plaque, a quote from the poet himself. It read, you will hear from me after I am dead. I had stayed there in one of my former visits and had not given the message on the plaque a second thought, but several others at the colony told me that there were many reports of Edward Arlington Robinson revisiting writers and composers who were foolish enough to work in the studio late in the night. I never ran into this, although I had done just that many times. Perhaps I wasn't conditioned for it. That raised a good question. Was the appearance of an apparition the result of suggestion? Suggestion was surely powerful. It was the base of hypnosis. In fact, hypnosis was suggestion. It was able to create, according to strict medical and psychological tests, both what were called negative and positive hallucinations in perfectly normal people. A negative hallucination was one where the hypnotist could suggest to a, could suggest to a subject that he absolutely could not see a person who was actually in the room. There may be four people sitting across from them, but because of the posynoptic suggestion, post-hypnotic, sorry, post-hypnotic suggestion, the subject would only see three. Nothing in the world could convince him that a fourth person was there. In the same way, a hypnotist could tell the subject that a person was in the room who wasn't actually there. The subject would swear on a stack of Encyclopedia Britannica's that the person was there in the room. I thought, wasn't this a plausible explanation for anyone who sees a ghost or an apparition that they were unwitting victims of suggestion? that their intelligence could be temporarily suspended by accidental hypnosis. I felt very good about this theory. It could explain not only the Eastern Airlines phenomena, but the, but, but the McDowell colony apparitions as well. It would clear up the whole question very tidily. I could forget about the idea of writing a ghost story and concentrate on my hardline scientific study on the dangers of nuclear power, which was the epitome of respectable objective science, tragic as the story is. It was so odd to be working on that story while being nagged by the other about a ghost on a jet airliner. I could balance the two, and yet somehow I felt there was a symbolism growing here that I didn't want to have anything to do with. I again analyzed why I wanted to even bother to get involved with a ghost story. The answer seemed to lie in the idea that life after death is the most important philosophical question any man faces. Every other question, scientific or not, becomes insignificant compared to this. All the great religions are concerned with this question. Those who can answer their own questions by religious faith have no problem about this, but an enormous number of people need further evidence to answer their questions. I was one of those. I tabled the idea of even checking the Eastern ghost story and nearly put it out of my mind. There was little time for socializing in McDowell, but after dinner, there were occasional get-togethers at the various studios. One evening, I had some friends over for a few drinks around the fire. The subject turned again to the possibility of life after death, and what kind of form it might possibly take. Two of the guests, Bill and Susan Moody, thought it would be fun to fool around with an Ouija board, just to see if some articulate messages might come through. I watched as a couple placed their fingertips on top of of the top of the planchet, a small triangular platform on three legs with a circular window in it. This is supposed to stop over various letters of the alphabet, which are grouped in semicircle on the board. 
The Ouija board has been around for a long time, and apparently Parker Brothers, which makes them in this country, sells a tremendous number of them. I learned later that they are supposed to be a kindergarten to second development. I've never seen any explanation for the planet just moves around the board. How it stops at specific letters. Apparently without the the the, the volition of consciousness or consciousness of the two people operating it. Later, I looked the subject up in an encyclopedia which said, there are hints which cannot be ignored, that the material which emerges by means of this type of device does not always originate in the subconscious of any of the performers. Occasionally, it seems to be due to some unknown kind of contact with distant events or thoughts of distant persons. The commentary went on. The glass window moves from letter to letter, frequently spelling out gibberish, but sometimes words and sentences. It was often assumed that the messages communicated through these devices must come from, from the dead, and much of the agitation against the use of Ouija boards in recent years seems to stem from deep-rooted fear that they put the performers into perilous touch with either the dead or evil forces. Certainly, the devices do sometimes produce material that is frightening, startling, embarrassing, or obscene, wherever it may come from, but the, te- but the tendency now is to look to the subconscious minds of the performers themselves as the source of the material. The material that came over the board that evening in the Watson studio at McDowell certainly matched the theories described in the encyclopedia. At first, the letters spelled only gibberish, but they came fast, and it was difficult to keep up with, the, with writing them down. After a few moments, the movement of the planchet seemed to become smoother and more stabilized. Bill and Susan Moody, Bill and Susan Moody at the board alter, alternately asked questions and continued to insist that the planchet was moving without any conscious effort on their parts. It stopped at letters so fast that they had no idea what was being spelled out. They were trying to get evidential material to check the board, information that they themselves didn't know, but which could be confirmed later. As the movement on the board settled down somewhat, the group began asking questions. Can you identify yourself? The planchet said yes. Are you someone who was here at McDowell? Again, the answer was yes. Bill and Susan, still at the board, decided to ask questions which would have to be spelled out. The yes and no system could not provide any specific information to test the the validity of the messages. Please state whether you were a writer, an artist, or a composer, they asked. These being the three groups that were represented at the colony. The planchet began moving in in rather swift circles, then spelled out poet. What is your name? The device moved to two letters and stopped. E.W. When you were here, when were you here at McDowell? The device moved down to the bottom of the row of numbers and spelled out 1925, 1926, 1927. I went over to the wooden plaques and skimmed down the long list of signatures. The plaques over the fireplace had become so darkened over the years that it was difficult to read the names scrolled on the rough pine surface. I finally found the years indicated and looked at the names. Eleanor Wiley, the poet, had signed into the Watson studio several times during the mid and late 20s. I went back to the board. It would be interesting to see what followed in line with the information about E.W., who had identified herself as a poet. More letters were coming through. I began to write them down. They moved fast, so, so, so that it was hard to tell whether they were spelling articulate words or not. The question at hand now to the board was, will you talk to us? The device began circling under the two pairs of hands, then it stopped over letters briefly and moved on to the next. Yes, if you blow out the lights. This was a curious sentence. Yes, if you blow out the lights. We had no sort of light in the studio you could blow out. 
They were electrical. I wondered where this archaic expression came from. It was only later that I learned that during the 20s and the first part of the 30s, the only light in the studios came from kerosene lamps. The couple on the board kept asking me what was being spelled out, but it was difficult to tell them until I had a chance to break down the letters. I was scrawling on the pad. We turned out three of the four electrical lamps in the room in compliance with the strange request. The question at hand was, can you give us the titles of some of your collected verse? The board went on to spell, help me. No one was familiar with any such title as Eleanor Wiley's poems or volumes by that name. It didn't sound at all like a title she would choose. They asked, is that a title or something you're asking for? The device hesitated and spelled, something I need. There was a creepy feeling in the darkened room. I was a little ashamed of myself for feeling squeamish. In fact, along with the others, I felt a definite chill. What can we do to help you? Was the next question. Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. The uh, weather's changing. I had some stuff up on the wall and it's starting to come down. It's all good. No biggie. That is not a ghost asking for help. Um, I was a little ashamed of myself for feeling squeamish. In fact, <laughs> along with the others, I felt a definite chill. What can we do to help you was the next question. The next letters formed quickly. Help me get rid of my past. Imaginary or not, the chill in the room was increasing. Bill and Susan stood up and one of them went over and quickly turned the lights back on. Everyone in the room had had enough. There were certain observations that could be made from the experiment. One was that there was no question that articulate sentences could come out on the board without anyone consciously forcing it. This was in contrast to the first long minutes of total gibberish, the device, total gibberish the device provided at the beginning of the session. Random spelling of words like Julian Huxley's theory about monkeys punching at a typewriter was impossible. Another conclusion was that the planchet moved by, by, by a force of its own without being pushed or pulled by the hands of the people whose fingers rested on it. A third point was that the messages seemed to reveal the agony of a restless soul. But of course, this could never be proved. Another factor was that there was some information provided, initial states, that no one in the room could remember knowing. I knew that I had no idea that Eleanor Wiley had stayed at the Watson studio over a period of years, and I was a little startled to find her name on one of the six faded and tarnished plaques over the fireplace. All this was inconclusive, of course. What dominated my mind was the nuclear research, which was like cramming for a final exam. I was lucky enough to get the book under control before I had to take off for the rest of the promotion trip. It seemed like an endless merry-go-round. The West Coast cities again, along with Miami, Dallas, St. Louis, Atlanta, and other points north and midwest. But on all those flights, I picked up more confirmation of the Eastern story from cabin attendants at several different airlines, including Eastern. The story was sticking to Eastern with remarkable consistency. In December 1974, I had completed the first draft and we almost lost Detroit, but there would be long weeks of checking and double-checking the facts with the editors and scientists. This was fortunately sporadic. I had time to relax a little and also consider some other possible assignments as a relief from the constant work on the Detroit book that had been demanding. One of them was to write the script for a documentary film for the United States Information Agency on the subject of oceanography and possibly producing and directing it later. I had always been fond of the subject, and it was a welcome chance, a change. The research and survey for the film would be demanding. 
It would cover the it would cover the, the oceanographic institutions at Woods Hole in Massachusetts, the Scripps Institution of Oceanography near San Diego, the University of Florida, Miami, and other locations. This project would be as far removed from the ghost story as anyone could get. Just prior to this, I had talked with the editors of the Reader's Digest magazine on doing an article on Yuri Geller. He is the young Israeli ex-paratrooper who was, pres who, who was presently star startling scientists at several universities in both Europe and the United States with his capacity to apparently bend metals and start up broken watches simply by metal concentration. I had met him in New York previously through mutual friends. At that time, he had lightly stoked stroked the door key, then taken his hand away. The key continued bending in my hand until it reached a 45-degree angle. He also held his hand over my watch, and it jumped ahead an hour and a half. I know a little about sleight-of-hand tricks, and was certain that and was certain that was what he must have used, but I couldn't figure out how. I didn't decide to go ahead on the article about Geller for the Reader's Digest until I made further checks. The whole story was so incredible. Here was someone who was apparently capable of changing the molecular structure of metal simply by concentrating on it. If true, this could change the whole face of physics. But only if true, only if verified repeatedly under laboratory conditions. I was getting myself into another story that I was half trying to resist. I was also moving into another hectic time of pressure. The, the, the oceanographic film required continuous study and travel. The finishing touches on the nuclear energy story required careful checking and rechecking. So did the Geller article. I was in the middle of stories on each end of the spectrum, the physical and the paranormal. I was surprised when I accumulated the research studies at several universities and institutions on the Geller experiment. This was a scientific ghost story in its own right. At the University of London, several leading physicists were finding that Geller could run up a Geiger counter to a point of 500 times background radiation by concentrating on it. He could dematerialize part of a... Of a uh, 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 you can materialize part of, of a vanadium crystal sealed inside a plastic capsule simply by holding his hand over it. There were several other tests, all of them repeatable and startling. At the conclusion of them, conducted in two different colleges of the University Birkbeck and, University Birkbeck and King's, three scientists came out with unequivocal statements regarding the future impact of the phenomenon. Professor J.G. Taylor, chairman of the Department of Mathematics, stated, I have tested Yuri Geller in my laboratory at King's College with specifically designed apparatus. The Geller effect of metal bending is clearly not brought by, about by fraud. It is so exceptional that it presents a crucial challenge to modern science and could even destroy the latter if no explanation becomes available. These were strong words, but those of Dr. Bohm and Dr. John Hasted of, of Birkbeck College were equally so. We feel if similar tests are made later, enough instances of this kind will probably accumulate so that there will be no room for reasonable doubt that some new process is involved here, which cannot be accounted for or explained in terms of the present, no laws of physics. Indeed, we already feel that we have gone some distance toward this point. As usual, the Reader's Digest Research Department spent many weeks doing a line-by-line -line check on the Geller article. I was glad because it would serve as a double check on the facts that I had gathered for the piece. Geller was invited to come into the Digest New York office and let the researchers and editors observe his apparent capacity to violate the laws of physics. There were a dozen or so of the magazine staff at the meeting. Two of the editors were dyed in wool skeptics. Geller started his demonstration by lightly touching a key held out by a researcher. It began bending and continued to bend. As often happens, several other keys in the room began bending, although Geller was not near. 
One of the skeptical editors reached into his pocket and pulled out his keys. He was one of those which he was one of those which had been markedly. His was one of those which had been markedly. Because of this experience, I became more willing to examine phenomena that I had never considered examining before. But I found that it was necessary to probe in depth. To probe in depth, it could not be done superficially. When I had first heard of UFOs or Geller's feats, I simply did not believe them. Then I noticed another thing happening. I found myself blowing alternately hot and cold in my belief, even when the evidence was overwhelming. The very idea of even considering the possibility of a ghost or apparition had been repugnant to me in the past. Yet, I kept thinking, in, thinking in view of the way my mind had, ha- had opened up to several other events, that the story of the L-1011 just might possibly have enough to it to consider. I was beginning to make my mind up that it was something that really ought to be pursued, yet I was barely aware of that at the time. I knew that the only way I could even consider the idea was to dig deeply into the background and history of the whole subject, or not at all. Did the Eleanor Wiley experience with the Ouija board suggest a possibility? I didn't know. Later, I was to realize that I was heading... I could, that, I was, that I was hitting a canoe for some very rough rapids. The deadlines and pressures continued. Especially pressing was the research and survey for the documentary film on oceanography, which had slipped behind schedule. It was a broad and difficult project, which involved conferences with the United States Information Agency film executives, and took me first to Washington, then on a general survey of various parts of the country. I had some time to spare while I was there and I decided to stop by the offices of the Federal Aviation Agency and its allied organization, the National Transport Safety Board, to find out the tragic background and details of the jumbo jet crash in the Everglades, which had been Eastern Flight 401, and to examine the roots of this strange story that had spread halfway around the world. There was, a, there was massive material available in the transcripts of National Transport Safety Board hearing the written testimony of passengers and flight attendants who survived, and the cockpit voice recorder that was recovered from the crash site in the Everglades. Here, the complete conversations of the ill-fated crew was, was recorded verbatim. I began to read the material and became utterly absorbed with it. There was a strange mixture of destiny, foreboding, and coincidence that gripped me from the start. Later, after I had personally interviewed many of the survivors, I began to sense many extraordinary circumstances that chillingly led into the strange events that followed in the wake of the crash. They began in the darkness of the Everglades and were continued far beyond that tragic night. Chapter 2. <laughs> got this thing's right here on me. Hang on. Okay. That's what happens when you use, like, cheap double-sided tape to do things. The Everglades at night is drenched with the sound of frogs. In the darkness of the staggering primeval swamp, every kind has its own sound, from the narrow mouth toad to the sulfur belly and the pig frog. They join in, in this throaty chorus among the mosquitoes and the water moccasins. Even the bellow of an alligator is drowned by it. As the noisy sulfur belly, as a, as a noisy sulfur belly hunts crayfish, man hunts the sulfur belly. Its legs are a delicacy. Hunting them becomes a passion in, a, in, the, in this forest of sawgrass, an addiction. Lonely airboats prowl at night, but are lost in the blackness, a territory as large as the state of Connecticut or New Jersey. Late in the night of December 29, 1972, Bob Marquis was guiding his airboat 
through the Everglades in search of frogs. The boat skimmed across the water and grass, its giant airplane propeller drowning out the noise of their song. The smooth, flat bottom of the boat glided with equal ease over the clumps of sawgrass and the shallow pools of the swamp. In his 40s, Marquis was a former fish and wildlife officer. The Everglades was in his blood. His addiction to it had deep roots. Its loneliness and blackness brought him no fear. It was shortly before midnight, and he had some 30 pounds of frogs in the flat bottom of his boat. Clamped on his head was an 8-volt frogging light that had helped him pick his way through the lush clumps and, clumps and hammocks where little button bush and myrtle grow among the sawgrass. Some call the Everglades muck, misery, and moccasins. To Marquis, it, it's a refuge. I love a source of renewal. Like most airboaters, Marquis navigated by the seat of his pants. The trails he took were barely discernible. Even when, he's, even when the sawgrass was shoulder high, the uh, only clue to a trail might be the slightest hint of depression in the leaves. He knew, however, exactly where he was, some 20 miles northwest of Miami, where the faint, faint glow of, of its light smeared the horizon. The terrain was, as ever, flat marshland, a soggy prairie covered with soft mud, much of it under 6 to 12 inches of water. In the deep spots, and in some <clears throat> some of the canals, sorry, the depth could suddenly change to a dozen feet, or even up to 50 or 60. Here he would cut his power, shift his weight carefully to the center, and move with caution. The slightest tilt could slip the water over the shallow gunwale and swamp the boat unceremoniously, consigning it to a muddy grave. These awkward, homely craft, half airplane and half scow, could skim over mud or water up to more than 60 miles an hour. Marquis was roughly 10 miles from the spot he had launched his boat from its trailer off Route 41. Known as the, uh, 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 oh gosh, man, <clears throat> known as, as the Tamamami Trail. He was, somewhere, he was somewhere near level 67A, one of the long, rough fingers of dirt and stone that smeared through the endless river sawgrass for flood control. The weather was serene. The December night was a soft, was a soft 72 degrees. There were scattered clouds. The wind sowed at only seven knots. From his perch in front of the screen that shielded the airboat propeller, Marquis happened to glance to the north. Here he saw the lights of a large airliner, clearly discernible among the stars. It appeared as if it had just taken off from the Miami International Airport, lying to the southeast. The plane was low on the horizon, but it was hard to tell what its altitude was. It was moving southwest, perhaps five miles away from his airboat. Marquis thought little about, about it. Jets were constantly taking off and landing at Miami. The Everglades was an integral part of the approach system. From the air, they looked like a vast black carpet, as black as the sea at night, and without lights. Without instruments, it is impossible to tell whether the plane is 2,000 feet above the ground or 20 feet. There is nothing to relate to, nothing to sort out, a sheet of black velvet. There is no well-defined horizon. Only the brilliant lights of Miami in the distance can give any orientation. But even then, the belly of the plane could, could do the pilot's eye be almost scraping the black carpet or safely above it. <clears throat> since it was nearly midnight, and since Bob Marquis had a long trip back to the, to the trail, his thoughts turned toward going back home. There was nothing unusual about the plane on the horizon, nothing particularly to catch his attention about it. He was unable to know at that moment that he would soon be facing the most horrifying experience of his life. 
Friday, December 29, 1972, was marked by the usual holiday cheer. Some of it was genuine, much of it forced and frenzied. In contrast to some joyous family reunions and preparations for the New Year's festivities, the Air Force was reported bent on pulverizing Hanoi and Haiphong above Vietnam's 20th parallel in the face of stern congressional censure. One Republican senator bluntly said that Nixon must have taken leave of the census. Truman was being buried in Missouri. The mayor of Detroit was saying that he wouldn't run again. Willie Mays was saying that he was going to play again in 1973. In New York, the chief cashier, the elegant St. Regis, was shot and killed by a man he had recently fired. The winning number of the New York State Lottery was 367259, and those whose tickets matched that number would win $50,000. In Miami, preparations were being completed for a three-mile-long King Orange Jamboree Parade, which would occupy over 50 50 million people on NBC television on its 90-minute journey through downtown Miami to herald the Orange Bowl football game. It was, it was the time when airlines were busy and, and, and frenetic, especially on the New York to Miami run, on the New York to Miami run, where chilled New Yorkers sought sun and warmth, and some Floridians were scurrying back home for the New Year holiday. One traveler was Rosario Messina, a New York garment manufacturer in his 40s. <clears throat> He had had to interrupt his Florida vacation to make an unwelcome three-day business trip to New York. His wife, Sadie, had not been at all happy about it. She had begged him to stay in Florida on vacation because she had a frightening premonition she could not shake. Rosario was to return that Friday from LaGuardia Airport. He found, however, that he preferred a nonstop flight from Kennedy International, Eastern 401. It was scheduled to leave JFK at 9 p.m a desirable flight in one of Eastern spanking new TriStar jets, the L-1011, one of the new wide-body jumbo generation planes. This, this Lockheed version matched the Boeing 747 and the Douglas DC-10 in comfort and spaciousness. Rosario was lucky to get the flight. It had been reported sold out. One Eastern supervisor, Angelo Donadale, found the only way he could return to Miami was by riding in the jump seat on the flight deck. As a technical specialist for all the L-1011s, he was qualified to do so. The giant planes were Eastern's pride. Fifty of them had been ordered as flagships of the Eastern fleet at, at between 15 million and 20 million each. The quietest, cleanest plane in the skies was the way one Eastern vice president phrased it. He wasn't far from wrong. It bore the company's designation of Whisperliner gracefully and without embarrassment. In spite of the fiscal diseases of Lockheed and Rolls-Royce at the time, a dozen of the sophisticated trimotor craft had come off the line for Eastern, able to carry over 250 passengers each in cushioned comfort. Flight 401 would be handled by the L-1011 designated as plane number 310. Delivered in August 1972, it had already accumulated nearly 1,000 hours of flying time with over 500 landings. Its computers could almost think for themselves. They could actually land the plane automatically if desired. The passenger cabins were plush and inviting. Both flight deck and cabin crews were in love with the L-1011s. Passengers came to feel the same way. Sound and vibration were literally a whisper. The cabins were airy, the lighting soft and inviting, the decor tasteful and subdued. The plane that was to be the craft for Flight 401 came to New York on December 29th from Tampa. The cockpit crew was seasoned. Captain Bob Loft in his mid-50s had nearly 30,000 hours of flying time, nearly 300 of, of them on the new L-1011s. First Officer Albert Stockstill, known as Bert, was nearing 40, had slightly more time on the new jumbo jet, but considerably fewer in overall hours. 
Second officer, Don Repo, just over 50, was a veteran flight engineer with a passionate attachment to the L-1011 and all of its intricacies. Now, as it was, he knew the plane by heart. The cockpit crew would arrive at JFK from Tampa shortly after 7.30 p.m. A comfortable enough time to prepare for taking Flight 401 back to Miami at 9 p.m. with its holiday passengers. A new crew of 10 stewardesses would meet them at Kennedy to handle the cabins, replacing the cabin crew that accompanied Captain Locke on the flight from Tampa. One of the stewardesses on Locke's flight from Tampa was Doris Elliott, a slim, attractive brunette, high-spirited and sensitive. Some two weeks earlier, she had been working a flight from JFK to Orlando when she was hit with what she described as a weird, sick feeling. It was overpowering. In her mind's eye, she saw clearly an L-1011 over the Everglades coming in on flight approach to Miami International. It was dark late at night. She saw the left ring crumble and the fuselage smash in the ground. She heard the cries of the injured. She had to stop work in the cabin and sit down. Two of her friends, flight attendants, immediately came to her side. They asked Doris what was wrong. She told them. She had had experiences like this before, and they had turned out to be almost totally accurate. Four of her former classmates had been killed at a railroad crossing after she had foreseen the accident. They asked Doris when this new accident was going to happen. Around the holidays, she told them, close to the New Year's. Is it going to be us? No, Doris said, but it's going to be real close. Doris regained her composure and finally was able to put it out of her mind. In fact, it was completely out of her thoughts when she arrived at Kennedy that December 29, 1972, shortly after 7.30 that evening. The cockpit crew, Locke, Stockstill, and Repo, went directly to Plane 310, the L-1011 that they were to fly to Miami. They would begin the pre-flight check immediately. They were to discover that a new assigned cab, cabin crew of 10 stewardesses had not yet arrived to handle the full complement of passengers that had been booked. There was not much time left. Flight 401 was to leave at 9 o'clock. Considerable work had to be done before boarding. In a last-minute switch, Captain Loft's team of, the, team of stewardesses, including Doris Elliott, was assigned to Flight 401. The original scheduled cabin crew was flying up to New York from Miami on Flight 26. They were late, and it looked as if, as if there was little chance of reaching JFK for a turnaround on 401. They were a closely-knit team and had enjoyed working together during the Christmas month. In fact, just before leaving Miami, they had asked a friend to take a picture of them as a group. They were jovial and relaxed as the picture was taken. Of course, there was the usual fooling around, including the V-shaped fingers behind the head to make horns, the exaggerated poses, the impish smiles. The two girls who were the butt of this lighthearted devilment were Patricia Geisels and Stephanie Standage, both popular with their colleagues. When the picture was developed later, they would appear to be wearing horns on their heads in the form of V-shaped fingers of their friends. And airlines, cabin attendant teams are not universally congenial. The photograph would mark an exceptional occasion. One of the stewardess's group, whose name is withheld here, has, had not been in jovial mood some six months before the picture was taken. She had consulted a psychic medium in the northwest sector of Miami, not far from the airport, and he had told her that she was to be in a plane accident before the year was over. She was going to think that she had been killed, but she must have confidence that she was alive, even though all around there her would be total blackness. This scheduled cabin crew arrived at JFK at nearly 8.40 p.m. They scurried off their plane and over to Flight 401, which, which the standby stewardesses had already boarded. There was a congenial exchange of assignment as the original crew took over from Doris Elliott and the others. Her strange premonition didn't enter her mind again at that time. 
She left the plane with her two friends to pick up Flight 477, their original assignment, to return to Miami via Fort Lauderdale. It would follow Flight 401 down. They had, for the moment, also forgotten the premonition. The premonition. It was, it was to come back vividly to all three later that night. The cockpit crew for 401 entered the plane for the pre-flight check in fit and rested condition. Aside from the trip up from Tampa, they had each had over 14 hours of rest. They had flown only slightly over two hours in the previous 24. All were medically certified, the only limitation being corrective glasses for both Captain Loft and 2nd Officer Don Repo for near vision. On the morning of their scheduled flight for New York, Captain Loft <clears throat> had dabbled about his yard doing some light cleanup. He had a pleasant home matching his $52,000 salary. He was 50th in seniority among Eastern's 4,000 pilots, with a swimming pool in his home and a golf course next door, Loft was planning a, 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 a foursome the day after he arrived back from his trip. Loft was every bit the image of the ideal airline captain. He was conscientious, a perfectionist, combining these qualities with a salty wit. As an outdoorsman, he had joined with some other pilots to own a hunting lodge near the Everglades town of <laughs> eh. Emolakali. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just having issues with these, with these words. Cool under pressure, he commanded respect from the crews who flew with him. First officer Bob Stockskill was also the prototype of the handsome, well-liked pilot. On the morning of Flight 401, he rose late, then went down to his workshop where he was building a light airplane. He left for the flight up to New York about 12.30 in the afternoon. Even those who knew Don Repo well had trouble in describing him. He had a rare sense of humor that was unpredictable. He was far from a stereotype. He had come up from the, come up the line from aircraft mechanic to flight engineer. Later, he qualified for commercial pilot certificate. He was rough-hewn, popular, and perfectionist in his work. Repo had returned from a trip the day before his Flight 401 assignment, troubled by a light cold. He went to bed early to try to shake it. The next morning, he took one of his daughters to a doctor, dropped by his bank, and then drove to the airport shortly after noon. All the crew were married. Loft had two children, Repo had four, Stockskill had nine. Aircraft 310, the whisper liner that was waiting for them at the JFK ramp, had been in service for Eastern for some four months. She was graceful, sleek, polished. <clears throat> she carried Eastern's powder blue and dark blue stripe along the banks of windows, stretching much to like the football field, then curving upward along the six-story high tail. The belly of the plane was glistening, bright metal. The top side was a creamy white with the Eastern logo along the side near the flight deck. She was equipped with three Rolls-Royce RB211-22C jet engines, two on the wings, one astern in the tail assembly. The word whisper liner was neatly printed in block letters along the pod of the engine and the tail mount. The crew in the cockpit sat two stories off the ground. On the ground, the craft looked like a huge, smiling, friendly dolphin, with the crown of the forehead curving down where the cockpit windows were. The black radar dome served as the snout. She would be well nursed. A special hangar for all the L-1011s was a $62 million home in Miami, larger than the Orange Bowl. The pre-flight check routine, the craft had been well maintained from both the company's procedures and the FAA requirements. Weight and balance were well within the required limits. The flight to Miami would require 42,000 pounds of jet fuel, and the plane was loaded with 85,000 pounds before takeoff. The avionic flight control system was one of the most sophisticated modern aircraft. There were 163 passengers and 13 crew members boarding the flight. There was a large quota of no-shows. Angelo Dunnadale, the Eastern technician, 
troubleshooter, decided to ride in the, in the left jump seat behind Captain Loft anyway. He had been sent to New York on a routine assignment and wanted to get back home for the closing on a house he had bought. He had no direct function as a member of the crew, but as a technical expert on the LT-11, he would be interested in continuing his observations. Inside the cabin, last-minute preparations were being made by the stewardesses. The lighting was soft, splashed, splashing down from the wall from grid ceiling. There was, little, there was little sense of crowding. Even near the tail section of the plane, there were eight seats across in, the two, in a 242 pattern, with ample room in the aisles. There were sounds of doors closing, the clump of the luggage in the baggage compartment door slamming, and the belly. And the closets that divided the sections of the cabin, the electric doors slid down and closed. From somewhere, the anonymous voice of the senior stewardess came over the intercom. The pleasant <clears throat> good evening, the welcome to flight 401, the cabin altitude control for your comfort, the oxygen mask, as the other stewardesses went through the ballet of demonstrating them. As usual, there was also the ballet with the life jackets. The indicating of the escape doors, the warning to keep the seatbelt fast, warning to keep the seatbelts fastened, and the suggestion to relax and enjoy the flight. Then the soft chime for the cabin attendants to take their places and the high whine of the jet engines as the plane began to taxi. The whisper liner left the ramp not too long after the scheduled departure time at 9 p.m. The holiday traffic was heavy. There would be there would doubtless be a frustrating wait at the end of the taxiway as the planes ahead of the line took off. The huge craft lumbered out toward the runway on, on, on the black meadow of the field, picking a precious path through the blue and white Christmas tree lights that marked the taxi and runway paths. In spite of the traffic, the delay at the end of the runway was minimal. At 9.20 p.m., Flight 401 was cleared for takeoff by the tower. Captain Loft advanced the three throttles, and the enormous ship rumbled down the runway. Within moments, the L-1011 Whisperliner was airborne, and the lights of the runway were slipping backward from the plane. Below the Borough of Queens, look, below the borough of Queens looked like a jewel tapestry. The ceiling lights were dimmed, the soft baby spots highlighting the interior with pools of light. As the ship banked over the Atlantic, climbing, climbing, the no-smoking sign went off. The 28-degree chill of New York was about to be exchanged for Miami's balmy 75 degrees. The flight was smooth and uneventful. Even though the seatbelt signs remained on until over West Virginia, the martinis, the scotches, the cokes were served, along with the packaged meals. The winds were favorable. Captain Loft was making up for lost time. It appeared that the estimated time of arrival at the Miami ramp would be close to schedule 11.32 p.m. The mood on the plane was more buoyant than usual, perhaps because of the holiday season and the release from the chilled northwest. Barry Connell, a portfolio manager for Brown Brothers, Harriman, relaxed in his seat reading a paperback. His wife, Anne, was beside him. She was an employee of Eastern, and they were riding on space-available passes. The trip was relaxed and pleasant. The time slipped away, slipped by, slipped by swiftly. For a journey that would take two days by car, Flight 401 would cover the distance in less than two and a half hours. Ronald Infantino, a 27-year-old Air Force veteran and student at Miami New Junior College, Miami Dade, I'm sorry, Junior College, also sat beside his wife, enjoying the smoothness of the flight. They had tried to get an earlier flight, but it was booked. They settled for Flight 401. He was. He was a serious student in aviation administration. They had been married just 20 days. They had been married just 20 days and come up from Miami to New York for a honeymoon and a visit to his parents. Farah, his wife, worked for the Dade County South School System as a secretary. 
They were very much in love. As the plane sped past toward Miami, or sped toward Miami, Farrah asked her husband to change seats with him. Infantino obliged and moved into the window seat. They were looking forward to a pleasant evening with relatives on New Year's Eve. Rosario Messina, a garment manufacturer, considered himself lucky. He had gotten the seat he wanted on the nonstop Miami-bound flight and would arrive back to greet his wife, Sadie, so they could continue their vacation together. The passengers were made of a cross-section of life. They were accountants, housewives, lawyers, babies, businessmen, students, salesmen, and all the rest. There was even a tiny white poodle with a black button nose who sat patiently below the main deck waiting to greet their master at Miami. Jerry Escal, who once been named the Transportation Man of the Year by Dunn's Review, was particularly pleased with the smoothness of the flight, so much so, in fact, that he took out a pad from his briefcase and wrote a letter to, to mail the Eastern about both the L-1011 and the service on it. He was lavish in his praise. His wife, Joan, had flown down to Miami the night before on the same flight. They made it a rule not to fly together because they had four daughters and were concerned about the possibility of accidents. With the unusually high morale of the cabin crew, the service was good. As the craft began its gradual descent, the food and beverage carts were put away. The enormous galley and the belly of the plane, rimmed with stainless steel ovens, was in shape-shape condition. Judy Smith, who worked the galley that flight, put the finishing touches to it, squeezed into one of the tiny elevators, barely bigger than a tall, slim dumbwaiter, and rose up to the main deck. Even though the plane was not filled to capacity, serving 163 meals, along with liquor and beverages, is never an easy job. By the time Trudy Smith reached the passenger deck, Flight 401 was coming into the approach pattern for Miami International. She made her way aft toward the lounge and sat down to talk for a moment with, the, with Stephanie Stanage, one of the ten stewardesses of the crew. She was fond of Stephanie. They were close friends, often roomed together on layovers. Forward on the flight deck, all was well. Miami was blazing in the distance to the south, contrasting with the black velvet carpet of the Everglades that seemed to go on forever. The captain's voice, always comforting to the passengers, came on the intercom with a cheery note. Welcome to sunny Miami, Lop said. The temperature is in the low 70s, and it's, a beautiful, and it's beautiful out there tonight. Shortly afterwards, Captain Loft, in the pilot's seat, on the left-hand side of the cockpit, listened as a disembodied voice of Miami approach control came in over the radio. Eastern 401, left, heading 100, 3 from the marker. Clear to... IIS, clear to IIS 9, left. Good morning. It was not quite morning. It was, in fact, just after 11.30 that night. The approach control voice concluded, 118.3, Eastern 401, so long. Within a few seconds, Captain Loft responded, Miami Tower, Eastern 401, just turned on final. There was a brief period of silence, then what seemed like a radio leak when a voice from the tower said, who else called? There was no need for response from Captain Loft. It was simply an indication that Miami Flight Control was busy with other craft in the area. Instead, he turned to his co-pilot, Stockstill, to lower the landing gear. Go ahead and throw them off, he said. There was a familiar grind and shudder as the huge landing gears began falling into place beneath belly. Then, from Captain Loft, Miami Tower, do you read? Eastern 401? Just turned on final. Eastern 401, heavy. Continue approach to nine left. Heavy meant that Bloff's plane was one of the large jumbo jets. The shift had been made and acknowledged from the approach from the approach control to the tower. Flight 401 could not continue its approach without being handed off to the tower <clears throat> for the final descent. Loft acknowledged. Continue approach. Roger. 
Then the checkoff for the final approach, a dialogue between second officer Don Repo and the engineer seat and Captain Locke. From Repo, continuous ignition, no smoke. Coming on, brake system. Okay, Loft acknowledged. Radar, up and off. Hydraulic panels, checked. First officer stock still in the co-pilot seat on the right was counting. 35, 33, he said in marking the rate of descent. Loft, his eyes scanning the instruments, turned to stock still. Only two of the three green landing gear lights were, were showing on the panel. Bert, he said, is that handle in? Repo, his eyes on the engineering instruments, said engine cross bleeds are open. There was a moment of silence, a few brief, inter a few brief interchange of words before Stockstill said, no nose gear. I got to raise it back up. Loft, I got to raise it back off, Loft said. Dang it. There was the sound of the flat position warning horn. A few more seconds passed. Captain Loft spoke again. Now I'm going to try it down one more time. Stockdill acknowledged. In another few moments, an altitude alert horn sounded. There was definitely something wrong with the nose gear. No one in the cockpit could tell immediately what it was. Want to tell them we'll take it around and circle around and around? Stockdill asked. The plane was at 1,500 feet, dropping toward 1,000. The warning horns were corrected and stopped. There was little cause for alarm. The gear could be lowered not only by hydraulic pressure, but by hand winding or freefall, where the sound would confirm locking. Loft went on the radio. Well, uh, Tower, this is Eastern uh, 401. It looks like we're going to have to circle. We don't have a light on our nose gear yet. In moments, the tower acknowledged. Eastern 401, heavy. Roger, pull up. Climb straight ahead to 2000. Go back to approach control on 128.6. Loft switched his radio channel as the plane was handed back to the approach control tower. Sometime before, Loft had told a friend of his, when you have a problem with the landing gear, nine times out of ten is the signal light that's off, and not the gear. He felt that way at this point. But the flap said at 2.20, the plane was made ready to begin its gradual climb back to 2,000 feet for the go-around. It was now 11.34 p.m., close to the moment that the anticipated flight would touch down. The plane had been directly on the glide slope for runway 9L. Stock still still made a move to bring the landing gear up again. But Loft said, put the power on it first, Bert. That a boy, leave the damn gear down until we found out what we've got. Stock still agreed, as Repo said to Loft from his engineer's seat, you want to test the lights or not? Yeah, Loft replied, check it. Stock still added, uh, Bob, it might be the light. Could you jiggle that, the light? Loft turned back to the radio and said to the approach, okay, going up to 2000. 128.6, the plane had just dipped slightly below 1500. At 11.35 p.m., it was now climbing on up to a safe 2,000, where it could circle first north and then west in a wide racetrack pattern. Its speed was just above 180 knots. The problem was either in the nose gear itself or in the green light that signaled when it was down and locked. Before attempting to land, it was routine to have all three of the landing gear signal lights reading green across the threshold. At the moment, there was no gear down and locked indication, but, that sound, but the sound it indicated it was. The warning lights were housed in an assembly that sat across the throttles from the captain on the cockpit on the co-pilot side of the cockpit. They were just below the handle that raises and lowers the gear. The light fixture that, that commanded the, the attention of the cockpit crew had a replacement value of $12. Like most instrument lighting assemblies, it was it was a little tricky to snap in to snap in the bulb or its assembly or to take either of them off. Don Repo, as flight engineer and second officer, was trained in the mining, in, in, in its minor intricacies. On the other hand, the light was situated between the captain and the co-pilot, near the co-pilot. It would be more convenient for either of them to give it at least a preliminary check. 
<clears throat> there were the there, there were the options regardless there were the options regardless of the bothersome of the light they would try to change the bulb of course but at the same time repo could descend into what is called a hellhole underneath the cockpit floor there he could check the the, the gear there there he could see the the gear visually in the few seconds it took to begin the climb up to 2,000 feet above the landing glide path, the crew was already checking the first procedure, replacing the warning light. At the same time, there was a lot to do in simply flying the plane in the holding pattern. Stock still announced, we're going to 2,000. You want me to fly it, Bob? Bob Loft, concerned with the radio communication for the moment, asked, what frequency did he want us on, Bert? 128.6. I'll talk to them, Loft responded. At the same time, Repo was helping Stockstill <clears throat> check the warning light. It's right above that uh, red one, is it not, he said. Yeah, Loft told Repo. I can't get it from here. Leaning into the control panel from behind, Repo gave the lap assembly a tug. I can't make it pull out either, he said. Checking the endless checking the, the, the endless settings on the flight, new flight pattern, Loft asked, We got pressure? Yes, all systems, Repo answered. Captain Law finally got back to the radio communication with Miami Approach Control. All right, uh, Approach Control, he told them. Eastern 401, we're right over the airport here and climbing to 2,000 feet. In fact, we've just reached 2,000 feet, and we've got to get the green light on our nose gear. In seconds, the response came from the Approach Control. Eastern 401, roger. Turn left, heading 360. Maintain 2,000 vectors to 9 left final. Left 360, Loft answered. Then he swung the L-1011 whisper line to the north. It was exactly 11.35 p.m., plus half a minute. Back in the cabin and shortly before this, Albert Morris, a dealer in automotive transmissions in the 60s, was congratulating himself on getting on Flight 401 as a standby. His original booking was on Flight 477 and was stopped off at West Palm Beach. Flight 401 was faster, more convenient, nonstop. When the no-smoking sign went on, he brought his seat back up to the forward position and waited for the landing. When the verbal reminder of the no smoking and seatbelt signs came over the intercom, Ann Connell returned both her own and her husband's seats to the upright position. <coughs> Excuse me. Their seatbelts were already fastened. She heard the landing gear groan downward and a dulcet sound of the bell that sent the stewardess to her seats. Glancing out the window, she was a little surprised to see the Eastern Airlines sprawling maintenance base at the airport receding in the background. They should normally be approaching it. Doris Warnock was facing them on her stewardess jump seat in mid-cabin. Feeling somewhat uneasy, she got up from her jump seat briefly, crossed over, looked out the window, just in front of the wing and the starboard end, just in front of the wing and starboard engine. She saw nothing but blackness and assumed the plane was over the Atlantic. Looks like we're circling, she commented. As the plane began heading away from the city lights and out over the vast darkness of the Everglades, Anne turned to her husband Barry and said, If I didn't know any better, I think we were being hijacked. The darkness beneath the plane was total. As the craft moved further and further away from the airport, Anne became somewhat concerned. She couldn't, in fact, decide whether the plane was heading out over the Atlantic or over the Everglades. There didn't seem to be any marked descent, what, what, whatever, if at all. Nor was there any seeming change in direction. She then began thinking about the emergency exit. It was between her seat and Dorothy Warnock's. She also began wondering about the life rafts. Her husband, Barry Connell, put down his paper back when the announcement came over that the plane would land at approximately 11.35. He was a little concerned when Anne pointed out to him that the approach to the airport seemed rather unusual. 
There seemed to be no question that the plane was heading away from Miami International when no sign of returning in that direction. As a man who flew on business trips every other month or so, he was familiar with most normal landing patterns. Flight 401 was definitely not on a normal pattern. Several other people around him were now commenting on the unusual nature of the approach. They included two stewardesses, Trudy Smith and Pat Georgia, in the double jump seats by the deli. Trudy Smith had left her conversation with Stephanie Stanich in the F lounge when the no smoking sign had lit up, then made her way to her position. As she sat strapped, as she sat strapped herself in, she noticed a man walking down the aisle. She immediately jumped up to tell him, you had better go to your seat, sir, and maybe the last walk you'll ever take. The man went immediately to his seat. Trudy became aware that the approach was unusually long and mentioned it to Pat. Georgia, who agreed. Sharon Transu, another stewardess not far, from, not far away in her seat, joined them in their puzzlement. Sitting in her jump seat on the starboard side of the plane, stewardess Mercedes Ruiz noticed, that the, noticed the same problem from her position after the wing. She asked Pat Gysis, her colleague across the aisle, what was happening to the approach. Neither came up with an answer. There was little, there was little outward sign of, of restiveness in the cabin. The lights were dim for landing. The engines were quiet. Ronald Infantino, after spending what he called the happiest three weeks of my life, was happy to be beside his new bride and eager to get on with his studies. Jerry Escal, the glowing letter to Easter, safely in his coat pocket, sat back on his seat and waited. Forward in the cockpit, there was still the problem of the morning light. By 11.36 p.m., a minute or so after Loft had announced his northerly heading and holding pattern at 2,000 feet, the crew was beginning to get a little testy about the stubborn light. Put the damn thing on autopilot here, Loft said to Stockstill. All right, Stockstill acknowledged. See if you can get that light out. All right. Now push the switches just a little bit forward, Loft continued. You got it. Turn sideways then. The gadget was giving all three of the cockpit crew trouble. It was obvious, exasperating. Now I don't think it'll fit. On the jump seat behind Captain Loft, technical specialist Angelina Donadale invited the rest of the crew to ask him if he could do anything, but he remained discreetly in the background until that moment should come. In a crowded flight deck, an offer to help can sometimes be a hindrance. Loft and Stockstill, both seated nearest to the light, were working on the problem, each with a hand on the unit as the autopilot, a, a modern electronic wizard that could control whatever altitude, direction, or speed that was punched in, into it controlled the plane. Loft and Stockstill each had his own auto, autopilot system in his position, but only one could be used at a time. Each pilot had his own instruments to read the information as to what the autopilot was doing at the time. Either autopilot could, could provide total control of the airplane, responding to the heading, pitch, and navigation control system put into it. The, the, plane could be the plane could be released from autopilot control by turning the engage lever to off, or by pressing the button switch on either control wheel. If these ways, these ways, it could be completely overridden immediately. But another safety feature that was added to the autopilot design, it could simply be disengaged by a pressure of 15 to 20 pounds on the control column. The steering yoke by the pilot who needed to take the immediate who needed to take immediate action in either altitude or direction. What was not evident at the time was that the automatic flight control system could be inadvertently disengaged by a rather insignificant bump on the control column. This could happen when a pilot might be getting up from or entering his cockpit seat and accidentally bump the steering column. If so, he could send the plane on a downward descent without immediately noticing it. There was one other problem not noticed at the time about Plane 310, the craft that flew Flight 401 that night. 
the computers that held the plane on the proper pitch through the autopilot were slightly mismatched. Captain Loft's computer could disengage the autopilot altitude control with 15 pounds pressure, while Bert Stockstill's would disengage it with 20 pounds. There was, this, there was more significance to this than met the eye. Loft could disengage his computer. His altitude indicator would go out. This would show that he was no longer on automatic pilot, and he would have to take over manual control of the craft. But the altitude indicator would remain on for Stockstill. This would give him the wrong impression that the plane was still holding the proper altitude. He could not see the captain's indicator from where he sat. Cross-check this. Thus, one instrument might say the autopilot was holding the altitude. The other would say it wasn't. Neither pilot could see the other's indicator. Because few people, if any, were aware of these anomalies, the pilots were not trained in looking out for them at the time. This could be critical. It could even be tragic. When there are so many different instruments to monitor, at one time, especially in high traffic or complicated approach, the visual sweeping of the proper instruments can be more demanding. There was no question that Flight 401 was making a complicated approach. In addition to trying to discover whether the landing gear itself was down and locked or whether the green light was faulty, other traffic had to be carefully watched at Miami's busy international airport, <clears throat> where over 8,000 aircraft movements take place each day. And there were other planes in the sky now. But they were safely off to the left. To put Flight 401 on the safety monitoring racetrack circling pattern, Miami approach call locked again. Eastern 401, turn left, 300. Okay, locked replied, 300. Eastern 401. Then he turned his attention back to the stubborn warning light. Stockstill continued to monitor the flight and help Locke from his position nearest the light. While he worked on the light, Locke decided to exercise one of the other options. He turned to repo and said, hey, hey, get down there and see if that damn nose wheel is down. You better do that. Stockstill was still struggling with the light bulb, peanut-sized. It was referred to in, in maintenance. You got a handkerchief or something so I can get a little better grip on this, he asked. Anything I can do it with? Pull down and turn to your right. Now turn to your left. One time. Nobody felt any emergency situation, but it was getting preposterous, especially when the crew was convinced that there was nothing really wrong with the nose gear. It hangs out and sticks, Stockskill said. This won't come out, Bob. If I had a pair of pliers, I could cushion it with, with that Kleenex. Repo, getting ready to go down the hellhole where the landing gear <coughs> well was, paused a moment. I can give you a pair of pliers, he said, but if you force it, you'll break it. Just believe me. Yeah, I'll cushion it with a Kleenex. Oh, well, we can give you pliers. Miami approach, monitoring the flight, carefully came in on the radio at 11.37 p.m. Eastern, uh, 401, turn left, heading 270. Left, 270, Locke acknowledged, then he gave up on the light. To hell with it. To hell with this. Go down and see if it's lined up with that red line. <clears throat> That's all we care about. Screwing around with that 20-cent piece of light equipment we got on this plane. The crew chuckled. With the options available, they were confident the problem would be quickly solved. The light was jammed, and nothing could be done about it for the moment, at least. The visual check would be more than, would more than suffice. Even that would be redundant, after the free-fall process. Down the nose wheel well, the light could, could eliminate the landing gear so that it could be viewed through an optical sight, like a telescope. It was located in the forward electronics bay just forward of the wheel well. If the two rods on the Lincoln showed that the red line on each side lined up together, it would indicate without question that the landing gear was in was in safe and proper position. Second officer Repo opened the trap door and climbed down the ladder into the hellhole. There was room enough for a man to stand down there and for two to squeeze in. It housed 
a battery of black boxes containing their complex avionic system to the plane. On the flight deck, Loftus Oxtail still struggled with the warning lamp. Every time, extra time is needed before the plane turned back for a new final approach. Loft called Miami approach again. Eastern, 401. We'll go out west just a little further if we can here and uh, see if we can't get this light to come on here. All right, uh, we got you headed westbound there now, Eastern 401. All right, Loft replied. Then he turned to Stockstill and said, how much fuel we got left on the plane? Stockstill checked <clears throat> the gauges. 52.5, he said. The whisper liner had burned over 32,000 pounds of jet fuel on the flight. Loft, still working on the lamp, said, it won't come out, no way. Then to Stockstill, did you ever take it out of there? The noise in the cockpit from the air vent made hearing difficult. Huh, Stockstill said, have you ever taken it out of there? Hadn't until now. Put it in the wrong way, huh? In there, looks square to me. Can't you get the hole lined up? They were trying to reinsert the lamp assembly. It wouldn't fit. Another plane appeared below them over a field near the Everglades used for practice takeoffs. I think that's over the training field, Stockstill said. West heading. You want to go west or? No, that's right. We're about to cross Chrome Avenue right now. They were in the process of crossing over Chrome Avenue, a strip of road that separated the last of the thinning out lights west of Miami and marked the beginning of the full black carpet of the Everglades swampland. It was a few seconds after 11.40 p.m. Ahead of the plane was total darkness, again stretching far to the horizon. Within the two minutes, the plane would be over this wilderness. The plane was on automatic pilot. The altitude was set for 2,000 feet. Captain Loft was leaning across the throttles, still trying to help stock still with the peanut light. Although he was flying the plane during the abortive attempt at working on the light, stock still was the only crew member who could reach the light assembly conveniently. Although he had loosened his shoulder strap, Loft still had difficulty leaning over it. He had his left arm on top of the glare shield and was leaning across with his right. Specialist Donna Dale, on the jump seat behind the captain, still could do little to help without getting in the way. He stood by wanting help if needed. There was, however, at this point an almost imperceptible decline in altitude, an imperceptible decline in altitude, as the plane began dipping below 2,000 feet, but nothing indicated Nothing to indicate this showed up on Stockstill's autopilot indicator. He could not see the one on Loft's panel from where he was sitting. Stockstill didn't need to loosen his shoulder harness. Okay, Stockstill didn't need to loosen his shoulder harness to get at the warning light assembly. He put his left hand on it and tried to pry it loose again. I don't know what's holding the damn thing in, he said. Always something. We could have made schedule. Loft had already recycled the landing gear, and there was no question in either his or Stockstill's mind that the nose gear was down and locked. Repo below was almost sure to confirm it when he checked the red line. It actually was not even necessary to do that. The freefall recycling was, was a tested procedure in itself. In the two minutes and 12 seconds that followed, Stockfield's comment that the plane could have made schedule several things happened. One of the most important was that the soft, the soft and gentle C chord chime, which warned of a drop in altitude, sounded at 38 seconds after 1140 p.m as the altitude of the plane fell off ever so slightly to 1,700 feet. There was no sensation in the planes descending, nor over the blackness of the Everglades was there any visual suggestion. Excuse me. The warning chime, which lasted half a second, came from a speaker located at Second Officer Repo's panel. Repo was below in the hellhole, getting ready to visually examine the nose gear. The altitude warning signal was designated was designed to, re to remind the pilot to level off at the altitude he was assigned to stay. In this case, it was 2,000 feet. Flight 401 had been cruising at. There was no visual warning light with it. The volume of the chime is very low. It would be difficult for anyone 
Where are we at? Okay, for anyone with a headset on the hearing above the noise of the cockpit, especially when the crew members were so preoccupied with the problem at hand. There was no indication that anyone at all heard the C-chord chime, which was softer than the suburban doorbell. There was also no indication on Stockskill's autopilot and enunciator that the plane had left its assigned 2,000 feet altitude. At the precise moment that the chime sounded, Loft was saying, we can tell if the damn nose gear is down by looking at our indices. He was referring to the red line again, but he added, I'm sure it is, Stockstill confirmed. It free falls down, said Loft. The test didn't show the lights worked. Anyway, Stockstill added, that's right. It's a faulty light, said Stockstill. They both agreed. It was time now to get Stack and Officer Repo back up and come in for the long-delayed landing. But Repo was already coming up the ladder from below. Partway up, he raised his hand in the cockpit and said, I don't see it down there. Huh? Loft asked him. I don't see it. There's a place in there you can look and see if it's lined up, Loft said. I know, a little like a telescope. Yeah, well, it's not lined up. It's not lined up? I can't see it. It's pitch dark, and I throw a little light, and I get, uh, nothing. At this point, Darladale felt he could be of some help without getting in the way. He unfastened his safety belt and rose to join Repo in the hellhole. Someone asked, wheel well light on? It was still hard to hear in the cockpit. Pardon? Repo asked. Wheel well lights on? Yeah, Repo said. Wheel well lights on. Always on when the gear is down. Now try it, the captain said. Donna Dale crossed to the hellhole door. Repo, dis- Repo disappeared down the ladder as he approached. Donna Dale squeezed through the two-foot square door and climbed down the ladder to join Repo. The compartment lights were on down there, and Donna Dale began walking out towards the bulkhead and the periscope that could view the nose gear. The visual checking was actually a redundant operation now. At 40 seconds after 11.41 p.m., the free-fall locking of the nose gear was certain. Back at the Miami approach, the controller noticed that the alphanumeric data block on his radar display showed Flight 401 and it had an altitude of only 900 feet <clears throat> instead of the 2,000. But momentary, momentary deviations and altitude information on the radar display are common. He would have to wait for at least another scan on the radar scope to verify this puzzling reading. At the same moment, the controller was occupied in orchestrating two airliners southeast of West Palm Beach, two more on departure from Bimini, and two others west of Miami approaching over the Everglades, all over a span of some 70 miles. As he monitored all six of these planes, Flight 401 was cruising far out over the Everglades. The controller had time, however, to radio Eastern uh, 401, how are things coming along out there? Captain Loft responded, okay, we'd like to turn around and come back in. Then to Stockstill, clear on left. Okay, Stockstill said. The display on his automatic pilot panel showed that the plane had not diverted from its, from its 2,000 feet assignment. Below on the flat black Everglades, there was no visual hint whatsoever that the plane was not at that altitude. The speed of the plane over the last several seconds had been picking up. From 174 knots to over 188, some 200 miles an hour. The throttles were pulled back and a little to adjust for this. The increase in speed, however, was not coming from the power of the engines. The angle of descent was increasing, bringing it with it a corresponding increase in speed. The automatic pilot still read 2,000 assignment on Stockstill's side of the cockpit. Miami approach control came in over the radio again. Eastern 401, turn left, heading 180. Loft responded 180. It was almost 11.42 p.m. At this moment, the plane was now only 600 feet above the swamps. It was falling at a rate of 500 feet every 20 seconds. Following the command to change direction, <clears throat> Stockstill gently turned, on, turned the wheel to the left 
at the rate of four, four degrees per second. The left wing dipped down at a 28 degree angle. Just five seconds after 11.42 p.m., stock still spoke sharply. We did something to the altitude. What? Lop said. We're still at 2,000, right? Stop, stock still asked. There was no direct response. Loft yelled, hey, what's happening here? It was nine and a half seconds after 11.42 p.m. All right, uh, that's it. I mean, like I told you guys, these chapters are long, the way this gentleman writes. But uh, now the plane's crashed. And so next Sunday, we'll continue on from here with this book. And I hope, I'm not saying I hope you enjoyed this because it, it is a sad story. But hopefully, uh, you know, you guys got... Got, got, got to hear some of this and got something out of it, but I'm glad you came. And um, let me turn this off. You can hear my AT&T stuff clicking off. And we will continue. We will continue next week for the rest of the chapters. The most annoying we're supposed to go. Um, tomorrow, the show, 6.30 p.m., we'll be back. I'll be back. I'm not having a good day with stuff. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Tomorrow, I'll be back at 6.30 p.m. 6.30 p.m. Pacific. We've got a special show for you tomorrow. I'm putting on my journalism hat. And um, Renee Fair is going to be on with us. And Renee Fair, the show's going to be about domestic violence, but the domestic violence part of it comes from the fact that Renee's sister had been strangled by her husband, and they had been having problems in the house with domestic violence and, and abuse. And... They were going through a real nasty divorce and he turned around and he strangled her and uh, tried to make it look like a suicide. And it took almost 30 years before he got convicted of the crime. So Renee had um, worked real hard at getting convicted and she wrote a book about it. And she also has an, ad, ad, an, advocacy, I can't even talk today, an advocacy group that she runs. So she um, is uh, decided to come on the show and talk to us about that. So that's what we're going to be talking about tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Thank you. Oh, excuse me. Thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. And uh, the usual spiel, you see that thing flashing across the bottom of the screen? Uh, we are a nonprofit. So if you feel in your heart to donate a little bit to us to keep these shows on the air, that would be great. Donate paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you are more uh, comfort with Venmo, comfortable with Venmo, go ahead and uh, go to Venmo, type in California Haunts, and you can do it there. I'd really appreciate it to help keep this show on the air. Um, as all the expenses for this comes out of my pocket, I don't have a regular job, but this is my job. Okay. And also uh, visit the radio website at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com to check out all our shows, and you can get to the YouTube site from there. And when you're at YouTube and you look at the little guy that has the little ghost that has the Sherlock Holmes hat and the, mag the magnifying glass, that is our uh, that is the way to subscribe. So if you like what you hear today or you like the other videos that we have out uh, to the shows that we've done, please subscribe. Um, click on that and subscribe because we're always looking for subscribers. I want to thank you guys for coming and I will see you tomorrow. Let me get my little thing queued up here. Okay. Get in the right position here. And I will see you all tomorrow.